Good morning. I see we have football fans in the house wearing their jerseys. Isn't it amazing how we can have unity in Christ, different teams, but we still love each other. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at verse 1 through 12 this morning. We're going to be talking about marriage and divorce. And I, um, I saw this, uh, this ad, actually, uh, one of the elders, Rick, uh, texted this to me some time ago, but it was this ad here in RSM, and it's, it's, uh, it was an ad for this meeting that happened on October 16th, which I'm really thankful for, because none of you can go to it. It's past. I'm thinking, do I want to advertise this? But anyway, but it says, uh, no cost webinar, divorcing through the holidays. Uh, you know, I don't know if you realize this. But uh, we are heading into divorce season. You know, um, statistically, most divorces are filed in January. And that's because people have some time off over Thanksgiving and Christmas to kind of work on planning their marriage demise. And then when, when attorneys get back into the office on, uh, in January, then people call and file for divorce. So we are heading into divorce season. God's timing is just perfect that we have, uh, that we have hit this this topic. You know, divorce can be very, a very sensitive thing. And, uh, you know, a lot of times there's people that they don't want to mention it because they're afraid of how it will potentially impact people or how it would make people feel. And I think that that is actually something we do need to think carefully about that. And divorces can be this academic topic, but divorce impacts people uh, tremendously and personally, and it is something that we need to be sensitive and careful about. But you know, our message this morning—it's probably not going to be a surprise to you—but it's 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 to discourage divorce and to say God says divorce is not His plan. And, and I just got to tell you, I've never met a divorced person ever who has come to me and said, "You know, Raj, I love divorce. When I think back over my life of really enjoyable, great experiences, my divorce—I mean, hey, marriage is great." You have a party with your friends. People bring you gifts. It's so wonderful. But I'll tell you what, really living is having a divorce. I've never met anybody who's been divorced, that promotes divorce, that loves divorce, that think it, thinks it was a good experience. Um, divorce is an expression of something very painful, something that God never intended. And so um, we're going to be looking at this this morning, and I think that... Uh, People who go through a divorce or people who have de been divorced should most of all love and appreciate what God says about divorce because they've lived through the pain and the difficulty of it. You know, the church really needs to be there for people who are going through difficult times. Uh, when somebody's going through a divorce, that is one of the hardest times in a person's life, and the church needs to be there for them. And it's not just divorce, it's every difficult thing that a person is going through. The church needs to be there for people. People who are considering having an abortion, people who have had an abortion, the, the church needs to be there for them. As people are struggling with that, church is where people need to go. People struggling with sexual purity issues need to come to church. They need the encouragement, the help, the support of the church. People who are struggling in their marriage, uh, they're married and they're having conflict and they're having difficulty and they're not getting along. The church needs to be a, p a place that people come when they're struggling. 
When, when a person is wrestling through gender identity issues, church is where they need to come. And, and just, you know, so that there's no confusion, we have people in our church, and there are people in churches all over the place who struggle with gender identity issues, and we don't always know it, we don't always see it, but it is going on in the church, and the church needs to be a safe place to talk about those things. Um, sexual attraction issues, that is going on in the church. That is a part of people's lives. And the church needs to be a place where when you're struggling with those things, you can come. And uh, what ends up happening is that when the church doesn't have a biblical worldview about these issues, when the church and when Christians don't think rightly, they actually don't know how to love people. They don't know how to help and how to encourage. Um, in order to truly help a person who's struggling with any kind of sin issue in their life, you have to understand what God says about the purpose of life. You have to know what God says about what is right and what is wrong. You have to understand the Christian message of redemption and forgiveness. And you have to have a clear perspective of the way that God transforms life, the way God can take anybody, no matter what they're going through, and he can transform their life. That is actually what happens for every single believer. I've heard people say uh, things like, man, why does, why does the church have these hot-button issues? You know, all the things that I just mentioned, divorce, transgenderism, homosexuality, sexual purity, all these things, abortion. Why does the church like focus on these uh, hot, hot button issues? And one of the things I would say is that I don't think in our church we have this unbalanced focus on those things, but we're certainly not going to ignore them. We're certainly not going to address, and that's a part of everything that God says about life. But I'll say there is actually an important reason for the church to focus on those issues. Somebody's like, man, why, why speak on divorce or homosexuality or transgenderism? Why not talk about lying more? And, and one of the reasons is that when you think about people who claim to be believers, um, I have not met any people who say, oh yeah, lying's a good thing. That's beneficial. Murder, that's, that's positive. More people should do that. Um, there's all kinds of things that we can acknowledge this is not God's plan. This is not God's will. This is not what God wants. But we have a culture that is bought into the lies of Satan. You know, when, when Satan was telling Eve to eat from the tree, from the knowledge of good and evil, when he convinced her to do that, it was not for her benefit. Satan wasn't saying, oh, man, if you'll do this, that will be really good for you. I, I care about your well-being. I care about your best interests. So disobey God and eat from the tree. And yet we have many people who call themselves Christians, who, who people sometimes categorize as spiritually mature people who promote and deny the things, who promote sinful behavior, who promote destructive behavior, and, and who deny what God says about these things. And so in some ways, the church needs to clarify, okay, well, what does God say and how should we think about this? I'm going to tell you one of the problems with the church ignoring what God says about things. There's two big problems. And one is that, that people 
fail to genuinely love people who are struggling. And I think about this. Um, kids who grow up struggling with their gender. Kids who stro- grow up struggling with sexual attraction issues. Um, all these things are so significant, so, <laughs> this is about divorce, but it's related. But people who grow up with these huge struggles and, and people come alongside them wrongly thinking that they love them and they encourage them to destroy themselves and to destroy their life. Now, I think about eight-year-old kids encouraged to take drugs and to have surgery to modify them because they're going through a, a struggle. And it's amazing that we do have a political candi- candidate that affirms that. And I think what is so tragic is not only that this person affirms it, but they're affirming it because they think it's popular and it's going to get them the most votes. What does that say about our culture and our society that people would do things that are so destructive and harmful? And what's terribly sad is when people in the church about divorce or about any of these other issues affirm and encourage people to walk down a road that will destroy them. That is not love. The other thing that happens in the church is you get people who just feel like, oh man, this is wrong, this is bad. And, and so they don't know how to treat or to respond to a person who's struggling, who, who opens up, who communicates things that they're going through. And when they need somebody to come alongside them and love them and throw their arms around them and understand how they're feeling and understand what they're going through and then point them to the truth of Scripture and the truth of what God can do and how to view themselves from God's perspective... Because people don't know how to do that. They think that loving a person, supporting a person, and encouraging a person is somehow compromise. And so basically, they just rather not see you around. And, and when somebody walks into the church that has these struggles or that's going through these things, they're rejected, they're stiff-armed, they're not met with grace and love and compassion. It's just like, go away. If we don't see it, then, it's, then that's somehow better. And so the church doesn't, uh, you know, the church is not a place where people struggling with sin can't come. The church is a place that people struggling with sin should come. Like think about Jesus when he was here. Didn't ever compromise God's truth. But he ate with tax gatherers and with sinners. And there were plenty of people that were offended by things that Jesus said. Hey, it got him killed. But there are also people who are hurting, who are struggling with sin. Jesus stepped into their life. He loved them. He cared for them. He pointed them toward transformation in Christ. And so it's really important, and I think especially as we consider this whole idea of marriage and divorce, that we think rightly about it. When somebody is struggling in their marriage, um, everybody in the church shouldn't just take a step back and go, Oh, yeah, it's none of my business. And we see these people. We know they're struggling in their marriage. We know they're having a hard time. And their marriages end up in divorce. And everybody in the church just kind of stands back and, and kind of watches people walk off a cliff. Oh, wow. There they go. Instead of, you know, one of the things I think the way the church ought to function, and one of the things that's important for me in my life, I want my kids in church connected with people in church. I want Michelle to be in church. 
I want her to know people. I want people involved in her life. I want to be in church. I want people involved in my life so that one day when my brain disconnects and I decide that the lady living across the street, it would be nicer to be married to her than Michelle. I hope that there, it's not just Michelle saying, Raj, what are you thinking? I hope tons of people in the church would surround me and, and notice that I'm having trouble and step into my life and say, what are you doing? And if that ever happens to Michelle and she thinks somebody at work is better than me, I hope I'm not the only one speaking to, into her life. I hope everybody is coming alongside her saying, hey, what are you doing? Don't, don't do this and pleading with her and encouraging her and pulling on her. And that's what I want for my kids. And yet too often the church just sits there, watches people walk off a cliff, and then either ignores it or is judgmental toward people after it's happened. And uh, that's not God's plan. Um, what should happen is you should have a couple struggling in their marriage, and they should show up to church, and nobody should have to say anything to anyone. They should run off to a Bible study, and all the ladies in this Bible study, as they hear the struggles being shared, should notice, oh, wow, this person's struggling in their marriage. And they should love them. They should pray for them. They should come alongside them and encourage them to think rightly about the struggles in their marriage. And they should go home, and they should say to their husband, hey, I think there's a marriage over here that's struggling. And all the men in the church should come alongside and befriend this person, this man who's having a hard time. Nobody should have to say anything to anybody. People in the church should just notice. They should step into the life. They should encourage. They should be understanding. And they should point people to Scripture. Church is not a place to just say, hey, if you're struggling with sin, get out of here, keep it a secret, we don't want to hear, we don't want to know. And it should definitely not be a place where when you're struggling in your marriage, you show up and sit around a room with a bunch of people, whether you're a man or a woman, and have people say, oh, man, what a jerk, you should get divorced, get rid of that person. Ah, it's terrible, I can't believe you're treated that way, don't put up with that, and start parroting all these ungodly, wicked, worldly attitudes. Uh, the church needs to be a place that rescues people. So, uh, with that as a backdrop, let's think about what, what are some of the things that God says? What does he actually say about marriage and divorce? When is divorce okay and what is the nature of marriage? So, um, just to give us a context, which this fits perfectly into this whole issue of divorce... Matthew 18, verse 1 through 6 says, Do not cause other people to sin. You would be better off having a rock tied around your neck and drowned in the sea than to cause one of these ones to sin. You know, you think about that in a marriage and the frustration and the anger and people fighting with each other. And you just think about um, when, when you contribute to your spouse um, wanting to get divorced um, and, and a person commits this terrible sin of saying, I married you, I made a commitment before the Lord, but actually I'm so mad at you, I can't stand you, I'm out. When that person commits that terrible sin, if you participated in them getting there, that's contributing to the sin of another person, and that's something that, you know, whether or not you're right or wrong, you ought to apologize, be the easiest person to get along with. There's all kinds of things in that regard so that you don't 
participate in another person committing a terrible sin. There's all kinds of ways that that is, that that is to be applied. Then the next thing in verse 8, 7 through 9 in Matthew 18, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, poke it out, cut off your leg. Do anything to stop yourself from sinning. So you don't encourage other people to sin, and you get sin out of your life at all costs. And then Matthew 18, verse uh, 13, um, just talks about the fact that God is the rescuer. I, I want to read this verse. It says um, that when somebody strays, and if, uh, that, that the, the shepherd goes after the lost sheep, and if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it, more than over 99 that never went astray. Like the, one of the reasons that people don't want to talk about divorce in the church is they feel like they're stigmatizing people. Well, if you've been divorced, then you're a bad person. That's so ridiculous that anybody would think. By the way, anybody who thinks that way about themselves or anybody who thinks that way about other people doesn't actually understand Christianity, doesn't understand forgiveness. Every single one of us has issues, a sinful history, a sinful past, and that's the whole thing coming to Christ. Jesus puts together broken lives. There's no stigma to anything. If there was, I mean, we all have all kinds of stigma. That's part of the humility of coming to Christ and saying, it's not about me, it's about you. And I think a lot of times the reason that the church doesn't think rightly about other people is because we haven't trained people to think rightly about themselves. You know, I think about 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11, where it just says, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor revilers will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just list this whole long list of sin, and it just says none of these people go to heaven. And, and if we look at that list, we'd all be on it somewhere. But then it says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. This whole idea that we don't know, the church is made up of people who were that. But Christ came into our life and he changed us. And when we understand that about ourselves, we'll actually know how to help other people struggling with these same kind of sins. So let's uh, jump into Matthew chapter 19 and let's start reading some of these things. So Matthew 19, 1 through 12. Um, the first thing we're going to look at, look at is the setting. And we're going to see two things in this, the first couple of verses. We're going to see truth and we're going to see love in these first two verses. And, you know, there are so many people who think that they're going to choose between truth and love. I'd rather tell the truth than love people. And you have other people say, I'd rather love people than tell the truth. And, and that is a, such a false dilemma. If you try to love people without truth, you're, not, you're actually not loving them. And if you try to tell people the truth without love, you're actually misrepresenting God's truth because those two things always go together. So let's, uh, let's consider uh, this. It says in verse 19, chapter 19, verse 1, Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, this is the, his preaching in Matthew 18, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds had followed him and he healed them there. So um, here's, here's a map and basically Jesus has been ministering up in the Galilee area and he goes down and just below Galilee, I didn't write it on the map, but above Jericho, below Galilee was the Samaritan area and Jews didn't like to walk through that. So Jesus goes around the 
um, the, the Jordan River there into this area of Perea, and this is where people come to meet him. I'm going to show you a picture of a, a divorce letter. It was found on that little X, like right in this area, they found a divorce letter from the time of Jesus. I'll show you a picture of it, actually. Uh, there it is. Uh, th this is a piece of, uh, of uh, parchment that they found, and this was actually a divorce certificate that Jesus is going to talk about. And so in this, um, this last phrase where it says, large crowds followed him, verse 2, and he healed them there. There were two things happening in Jesus' healing ministry. Uh, first is when Jesus healed people, it was demonstrating who he was, that he was the Messiah, that he was the person foretold. So he's doing these miracles. He's healing people. He's raising them from the dead. The truth about who Jesus is. But not just that, um, Jesus' healing of people was also an expression of, of God's love for people. He cared about them. He was healing them. He was resolving their physical difficulties. Um, Jesus was about truth and also love. And then let's look at um, our first point here. Divorce is not God's intention for marriage. Now, is that, is that, a, is that a, like, really? Wow, we have amazing things here. You mean God didn't intend for people to get divorced? Okay, rather obvious. But, you know, we have a culture, <laughs> I'd just say, don't learn anything from Hollywood and uh, all kinds of things. We could put all kinds of things on our list of things we don't want to learn from Hollywood, but one of them is marriage. You know, Hollywood is just like, uh, everybody just gets, they, they just marry new people all the time. They marry this person. They're married to them. They do some movie with somebody, and they enjoy kissing them and so rom some romantic scene, and then they divorce this wife, and they marry that one. It's like in Hollywood, you just have this amazing, all these crazy marriage things and all these prenuptial agreements. You got people planning to get divorced before they even get married. But, you know, I just want to tell you that divorce is not God's intention for marriage. Look at verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him, and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, let me just ask you that. Let's, let's answer that as United States citizens, those under the law of the United States. Is it lawful to divorce a person for any reason? What's the answer to that? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, United States, you're welcome. You can get divorced for any reason or for no reason. Um, you know, and what's amazing is we approach the Bible, and it just is so crazy. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, no, that, that was cultural, that was just for that day, talking about sexual issues, gender identity issues, or divorce? Oh, no, that was a cultural thing for their time. That is such a ridiculous thing, and nobody who reads the Bible actually thinks that. These things are not cultural issues. You know, for us, we've seen this huge swing in transgender issues and marriage issues, and we can go back 75, issue, 75 years and go, wow, it was different then. But if you read the Bible, this stuff was going on in the Old Testament. You read about it in Genesis. Homosexuality, people struggling with gender, divorce issues in Jesus' day. Um, the reason that the Pharisees are asking him is it lawful to divorce somebody for any reason at all? Because it was this huge debate. People felt like you could divorce people for any reason. And they're like, hey, let's ask Jesus this. It was a sensitive issue then. It's not like it wasn't sensitive then and now it's sensitive. No, it was always been a sensitive issue. And so even though things swing in our lifetime, there is nothing new that anybody is 
dealing with. So they came up and they're testing him. They're going to ask him a question that he cannot answer correctly. If he says, yes, you can get divorced for any reason, they're going to go after him for that. If he says, no, you can't get divorced for any reason, they're going to go after him for that. So they're asking him what they believe is a no-win question. And so then Jesus answers, and I think it's pretty important for us to consider his answer. Now, Jesus answers in verse 4, and he says, have you not read? Have you not read? That was Jesus' response to the Pharisees over and over. You want to know what he didn't say? Um, Jesus did not say, um, you know, uh, who knows what God says? I mean, there's no really way to know what's right or wrong. We can't know. He didn't say the Bible's so unclear. Who knows what God thinks about this? He did not say, well, everybody has their own interpretation. Well, what does it mean to you and what does it mean to somebody else? Jesus expected people to read the Bible and to know what it says. And that, that's another cultural thing that we think everybody could just, well, the Bible means different things to different people. Baloney. The Bible means exactly what God intended it to mean, and the Bible is understandable. You can read it and figure out what it means. That doesn't mean everything's easy. That doesn't mean that that there's nothing that we have to work hard to try to figure out. But Jesus' teaching on divorce is not confusing. It is not hard to understand. The most controversial issues in our culture have nothing to do with whether or not the Bible is clear. It has only to do with whether or not people are willing to accept what the Bible says. This is not a confusing topic. Is it challenging? Is it difficult? Yes. Is it hard to figure out what, what Jesus means and what God has said? No. So let's, let's read this. So he just starts by saying to the Pharisees, have you not read So he expects them to have read, and he says that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. You know, as we, as we look at this, Jesus is going to anchor his teaching and what he believes about these things in Scripture, which, by the way, all kinds of people, they do statistics, and they think, well, I think this, and I think that, and my response to all those people is, I don't care what you think. And, and, and when, when I'm talking to people, there's people sometimes that, because I'm the pastor, they're worried about what I think, and what I tell everybody I talk to, who cares what I think? What I think and what you think mean absolutely nothing. God's not coming to the, to the United States and saying, hey, let me take a vote to see what's right or wrong. God just says what's right or wrong. It's our job to figure out what he's saying and conform ourselves to that. It's, it, it, what other people think does not matter. If we hold an election and people vote something different than what Scripture says means absolutely nothing. Uh, We stand on the truth of God's word. And so Jesus is going to say some things, by the way, which clarify all kinds of things. And, you know, so many people say, oh, Jesus never addressed these issues. In this one verse, Jesus addresses all kinds of cultural issues, which we could spend weeks 
on each one, and we'll just try to go quickly through them. Have you not read that from the beginning he made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Jesus quotes Genesis. And in the very beginning of the Bible, he just says, hey, you want to know about marriage? Read what God wrote in Genesis. So the first thing you need to understand about marriage is that God made it. It's his thing. He defined it. He invented it. He who created them from the beginning. So we can go back and study Genesis and, and learn a bunch of things. Who is marriage for? That's a very simple question, and Jesus answers, he made them male and female. And then he said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Like, like it is not confusing what God's intention for marriage is. And people who say Jesus never addressed these issues are wrong. Uh, Jesus just addresses it right here. He made them male and female. God created gender along with everything else. Um, you are not the gender that you think you are or that you feel you are. You are the gender that God has objectively made you. God determines male and female. And, you know, when it comes to those kinds of things, there's all kinds of things that people think are wrong that are really right and things that people think are right that are wrong. It doesn't matter what our perspective is or what we think. What matters is what God says. You know, you might not always feel forgiven. You may say, man, I, I just feel so guilty about all these things I've done in my life and I've prayed about it and I've confessed it and I just am overwhelmed with guilt. Um, it doesn't matter if you feel forgiven. When God tells you that you're forgiven, you're forgiven. And you work hard to feel, um, to get your emotions and your thoughts and your thinking in line with what's true. Um, there are people who feel hopeless. Let's go, man, I've made these decisions. I'm facing this situation, and, and it's hopeless. And people sometimes look at their marriages, and they think that they're hopeless. But when God, with God, nothing is hopeless. You are not without hope in life. It does not matter if you feel hopeless. It's your job to think rightly about what God says. And if you are in a man's body, you're a man. It doesn't matter if you feel like a woman. And if you're in a woman's body and you feel like, that, that has nothing to do with who God made you. We are broken. We have all kinds of things in ourselves that are not what God intends us to be. And our job is to learn to think rightly about ourselves and to address and, and to approach these things from a biblical perspective. And so marriage is for a man and a woman, for one man and one woman, not one man and three women and a dog. Um, it, it is marriage is for one man and one woman, not for two men, not for two women and one man. Marriage, God designed for one man and one woman. This is not confusing. And anything other than that is destructive and it's harmful. So marriage is um, between a man and a woman. This is the other thing about marriage. Marriage is your primary relationship. Like think about growing up in a house. It says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. When you get married, that becomes the primary relationship in your life. Now, it doesn't always feel like that. There's a lot of people that have been raised for 20 years with their mom and dad. 
and are 30 years with their mom and dad. And that, that relationship is so significant. And the relationship with their siblings is so significant. And then they get married. And I've known this person for three years or two years or a year. And now we're married. And it doesn't always feel like the primary relationship. But God says that when you get married, it doesn't matter how close you are. It doesn't matter about any of those other things. You have a new priority. I cannot tell you how many marriages struggle and have problems because that basic principle, my primary relationship is with you. And how much family issues create problems in marriages because people don't just follow the basic instructions. You leave your father and mother and you cleave to your wife. Um, The third thing is that it says here, Um, that you leave your father and mother and you hold fast to your wife. That is a lifelong commitment, companionship, love, support, teamwork, raising the next generation and passing on faith. God has a purpose for marriage and two people are to be glued together. They hold fast. Um, The whole sexual relationship, sex is for marriage and the two shall become one flesh. The only appropriate expression of a sexual relationship is in marriage. That's it. No other time with no other person. It is in marriage. And that one flesh is part of two people becoming one. Now, there's all kinds of things about the whole sexual relationship. I've heard people say, oh yeah, we're having sex, so we're married in God's eyes. No, you're not. Um, if, if sex meant you were married, there would be no such thing as sexual sin. There wouldn't be fornication. It would just be marriage. But it's not called marriage. It's called sexual sin. You are not married until you are actually married. You're married in God's eyes when you're actually married. And so sex is for marriage, and the Bible gives us purposes for um, sex. Procreation having kids. God's design is, is that we carry on the human race. Protection. 1 Corinthians 7 says it's important for married couples to be sexually active so that they don't face temptation. That's part of how you love people. It's how part of, and you think about some of the, some of the issues. You got all these people who are not married who are having sex and all these people who are married who are not having sex. That is not God's intention or design. It's part of loving people and protecting them And it's also for pleasure. All of those things are are ways that God has blessed marriage. You know, sex outside of marriage has led to all kinds of problems in our society. If you go to prisons, people who come from broken homes who did not grow up in a home with their mom and dad are in prison. Poverty. If you take all the people that are in poverty, that are struggling, those are, most of those people grow up not in a home with a mom and a dad that love them and raise them. They grow up in broken homes or people that were with homes where their parents were never married or they don't even know who their parents are. And, and I'll, I'll say beyond that, there are over 60 million babies who have been killed through abortion. And most of the babies that are killed are because you have two people, you have somebody who ends up getting pregnant and they're not married and they violated what God has said about where sex is to be expressed. And, you know, one of the things that I just think, this is not about abortion, but I just think it's, it's 
so just crazy how the church and how people who are perceived to be spiritually mature can say some of the things that just are the most ridiculous. One of the, one of the arguments I hear um, for abortion is that all the people fighting for life, um, all they care about is life, but they don't care about education, and they don't care about um, caring for people after they're born. You know, that's so untrue. The people that I know that fight for life meet needs. They care about, uh, they care about education. They care about, about um, meeting needs that kids have. You think about pregnancy centers all over the place. That a kid walks through the door and just says, if, um, if I have this baby, my parents are kicking me out. It's like 20 minutes, and they say, okay, here's a home where you can go live. We'll supply everything that you need. People, people fighting for life don't just care about whether or not babies are born. They're actually the ones meeting needs. And you have people that say just like, first of all, that's not true. And secondly, <laughs> what a ridiculous thing to even say. I just picture saying, hey, Jackson, uh, we can only afford college for three of our kids, so we're going to kill you. He's number four, so he gets always used as the example. Um, I think Jackson would say, well, actually, uh, I would rather you keep me alive, even if you don't pay for my education. You know, it's just like, first of all, it's not true. And secondly, it doesn't actually make any sense. And yet people who claim to be mature believers have just abandoned everything. And one of the big things... That issue is so huge in our culture for many reasons, but one is because people don't approach marriage the way God says that we should approach marriage. Here's, here's a fourth thing that we see here is that marriage is actually not just a commitment between you and the person that you're marrying. More important than that, it is a commitment before God. It says here, Jesus goes on. And by the way, this is Jesus talking. Like, do we, have, we don't have to have a debate about who said this or any of that kind of stuff. Jesus says this. Jesus is God. Jesus made the world. Jesus made you. Jesus made marriage. What Jesus says is without question the truth. And so he says what God has joined together, let man not separate you know, what an incredible emphasis. Now, I want, I want to just talk about commitments. And uh, a lot of people, like, there's all kinds of weird things that happen where people are married and, oh, you shouldn't have got married. And, well, should I get divorced now? You know, when you make a commitment, whether or not it was the right commitment to make, when you make the commitment of marriage, you're married. And even if you did something that you should not have done, the moment you get married, that is a commitment before God. And you, at that point, need to honor God in that commitment. Do you remember when Joshua was uh, going in, God said, when you go into the land of Canaan, you were to kill every man, woman, and child. You're to destroy everything. This is my judgment. I don't want people to think that you're going into the land so that you can be rich. I want everybody to know this is a wicked group of people. They've rebelled against me for over 400 years. They do all kinds of wicked, sinful things, like the things going on in our culture. I've given them plenty of time to repent. They didn't repent, so I want you to go in there, and you are my instrument of judgment on those people. And you guys remember the story, right? Uh, this land of people come, and they have these old shoes. They got stale bread, and they walk up to Joshua and say, hey, we want to make a covenant with you, a covenant of peace. And by the way, Joshua was told not to make a covenant of peace with anybody. And so Joshua makes this covenant of peace. 
And then later he finds out they were pretending. They deceived him. They didn't come from far away. They actually lived there. And you know what God says? Don't you dare break that commitment, that covenant that you made. And actually, later on, King Saul, like generations later, Saul tries to kill those people and wipe them out. And God judges Israel for breaking the commitment that they made, even though it was a commitment they should not have made, even though it was a commitment that they had a responsibility to ask God before they made the commitment. And God says, don't you break that commitment. So regardless of your history, regardless of where you are, if you're married, you need to approach your marriage the way God says that you need to approach your marriage. There are so many people that are like, oh, man, I sinned and got myself into this mess. I should sin to get myself out of this mess. The problem with all these things is when you disobey God, and the solution to disobeying God is to start obeying God. The solution to disobeying God is to not disobey God in a different way. And so we need to be people that recognize that marriage, what God has joined together, let man not separate. I want to talk about just for a second, and we're going to end here, and we'll pick up the rest of this next week. But um, when you think about God's grace and God's mercy, I want to think back to King David and Bathsheba and that whole sin with Uriah the Hittite. First, current, first Kings chapter 15, verse 5. God is talking about David, and this is his evaluation. He says, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Do you remember when we were reading uh, Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1? Do you remember what it says in verse 6, giving the genealogy? It says, and Jesse, the father of, Dave, of David the king, and David, the father of Solomon, by who? The wife of Uriah the Hittite. Um, David sinned. He took, the, took a woman that didn't belong to him. And in the announcement of the genealogy of Jesus, no, that is Uriah's wife, not David's wife. But you want to know what is amazing? Is that... Um, the baby that, that Bathsheba gets pregnant during that sinful occasion, and, and God actually takes that baby home. That baby dies as part of the judgment. But the next baby that Bathsheba had is the next king of Israel's. Why shows up in this list? Solomon, um, God takes that broken, that sinful situation, that, that thing that never should have happened. And God is gracious, and he's merciful, and and and. David and Bathsheba have a baby that ends up being um, the one that carries on the, the Davidic line. So God is gracious, God is merciful, and if you could grab David and Bathsheba and you could say, hey, can we talk about what happened? Can I tell you what David would not say and what Bathsheba would not say? Oh, yeah, it's cool. I'm, I'm glad I did that. God would forgive me. You know, have you ever met somebody? I'm just going to sin and God will forgive me later. That is not what David's heart would have been like. He would have expressed God's mercy and God's compassion and God's grace, but he would have said, if I could go back, I would never do what God said was sinful. 
And see, in the church, we need to have that perspective. We need to understand God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. We can never threaten people or treat people like, oh, man, if you sin, you're out. We're, we're not going to accept you. No, we preach God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, and we love people, and we welcome them. It doesn't matter what's happened in your life. God can put it back together, and he can bless you when you're faithful and you love him. But we need to know what God says about what sin is. And we need to diligently teach people not to walk down a path that will be destructive for them. And so marriage and divorce, we need to think rightly about it. And we'll jump in next week and we'll talk about, um, we'll go through the rest of this passage. You know, one of the things that uh, right now we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it's one of the things that I'm so thankful for, um, that, that Jesus died to save us from our sins and to bring restoration and to put us back together uh, when we're damaged spiritually, which we all start there, and Jesus makes us alive. And what I am so thankful for is that we don't earn our standing. We don't earn our, our place before the Lord. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he was good enough for us. We're forgiven because of what Jesus did. We have a, a hope because of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to, with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day uh, in accordance with the scriptures. Uh, Jesus died for our sins. And so as you eat this bread, um, the, the top of this cup, it has a little thin piece of plastic you take that off you can get to the bread this represents the body of Jesus that was pierced for us 1 Corinthians 11 23 and 24 says I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you did in dying for us. Lord, as we consider this whole issue of divorce and remarriage, Lord, you intend that marriage will be for life. And yet, Lord, you have also provided for divorce. There, there are times when uh, you free people from marriage. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people that, that are committed to honoring you, to obeying you. And that, Lord, we would stay married when you say we should stay married. And that, Lord, when you provide for divorce, that we would walk through that as well. And so, Lord, we pray that you would 
Help us to be people that honor you in every way, that think about our lives the way you want us to think about them. Lord, we thank you for just the right standing that we have. Lord, no matter what has happened in our life, we can be right with you because of what you did on the cross in your name.